KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah. You are listening to the Arab Shabbat program on Bet Adar Aleph, Arab Shabbat Kodesh Parashat Truma. The Arab Shabbat program is in memory of Shlomo Yosef. Ben Chaim Shmuel. We're at Erev Shabbat Parshat Truma. The week uh, before Parshat Truma is an annual feeling of frustration. I come to a Parsha and I have a really difficult time reading the Parsha. And I can say in the in the spirit of the way I was brought up, um, as years go by, I feel like I'm making a breakthrough, and there's more. There are more details in the parsha that I understand, more elements that I understand, more words that in the past were strange to me, and now I understand them. But nonetheless, when I when I go through Rashi on the Parsha, I just want to understand the basic, most simple meaning. I find that at times a great sense of frustration. I can read most Parsha in the Torah, and here I'm I'm sort of it's big words Menakiot, Kaftor Perach Shukadim Maasech Hoshev. And, and, and beyond the details of the meanings of the words, how does everything come together? Especially when we come to the, uh, the, the skins that covered up the Mishka, and how did they all attach to each other, and what did they cover, and what were the lengths, and what were the widths, and you really have to <coughs> have a picture in front of you. And here, I, uh, on, a, on an annual basis, when we come to Parshat Shurmat I take out the book off the shelf with the pictures and the Rashis, and showing me everything, because without... Visualizing it, I I really have difficult understanding the words here, and and the frustration goes in a certain sense beyond the words. Yeah, it's frustrating. the The most frustrating thing for any student before is the teacher interesting, is the teacher nice, is is the is the material understandable when a, when a student faces material and doesn't understand it, then there's a tremendous sense of frustration. Because I don't even understand what's going on here in the class. But beyond that, second question that the student will often raise, sometimes, even when he does understand the material, and often especially when he doesn't understand the material, the student will say, well, why do I have to learn this? And, and that question is, is two or threefold when it comes to the Parshata Mishkan. A, the Mishkan was a temporary structure. And it wasn't the structure that was used for the Beit HaMikdash, and we will not use the descriptions in Parshat Shurma to build the Kelim in the future. 
maybe some of some of the kalim are relevant. Certainly, the the details about the actual structure of Mishkan are not relevant. We have a very strong tradition that anything that has to do with the Beit Hamikdash has to do with nevuah, and there has to be a navi helping us out with this. So again, the question raises itself: Why do I have to? Why do I have to know this? And then, even beyond all of that, well, a certain small section of the population will be actually involved in building it. You know, I could bring my, uh, the first few psukim of Parshat Ramah, certainly relevant, I'll bring my gold and my silver and my materials, be happy to donate whatever it takes to build a Mishkan, but I don't need to be involved in the details here. And I not needing to be involved in the details begs the question where in so many places the Torah limits what it writes in Torah Shebikhtav and then in the Torah Shebel it expands greatly on the details and here in a, in a section of the Torah which seems to be relevant to a small group of people Moshe, Betzalel, Aholiav the workers they need to know the details. Do we need all? To, do we all of us need to know the details? Why couldn't it said Basidat Hamishkan, Aron, Menorah, Shulchan, and and the and uh, the rest will be Torah Shabbat A lot of questions here of why do I need to know this? I don't understand it. Why do I need to know it? And the details, the amount of details here, are enormous of how things were made and where the, what was in the corner and how the different how the different um, skins covering Mishkan were connected to each other and how the pillars of the Mishkan, the Amudim, stood up in the Adanim and, and, and details and details and details that need to be known by some people but it doesn't need to be known to me especially when I have difficulty understanding it. In some sense, there's a feeling that the Mishkan, in that sense, is a microcosm of the Torah. Often the, the average Jew, which most of us are, feel a, a feeling of overwhelm when we sit in front of the entire Torah why do we need all these details? What do all the details mean? Doesn't the Torah? Don't we? Aren't we taught Rachamana Libabai, the, the God ultimately wants our hearts? What are all these great details that we go into? And if I put on tefillin, but the the order of the the sections of the tefillin was the wrong order, it's not kosher tefillin. Well, I was well intended here, and I wanted to put on tefillin. What's it make a difference? What the order is? What's it, what's it make a difference if I do it this way or that way? As long as I'm well-intentioned. And why does God care exactly, precisely how we make the Mishkan? And perhaps the first answer that we might suggest to this question is Jewish people can't remain ignorant to what they do 
for a long time. There is a sense of frustration being faced with a large set of details and what does it all mean? And the first thing perhaps we can take the rug from underneath our car, from, under, from underneath our feet and just say, no, your assumption is wrong. You're not allowed to remain ignorant. You're not allowed to remain scratching your head and not understanding. You have to look into things so that they become clearer to you, so you understand them better, so, they, so you realize their relevance. Don't expect someone else to come from above and put you into a state of understanding. If you want to understand something, you delve into it. This is something that I like to mention in the context of Psukim at the end of Sefer Dvarim. And I won't go into the Psukim right now, but just make the actual statement. The Torah, to its audience, Am Yisrael, is different than other areas of knowledge to its audience. If, if we take uh, two areas of knowledge, medicine, law, finance, all of these areas are areas which I, as a person who's not a person of medicine, I'm not an expert in medicine or law or finance, I, I have interactions with all of them because I need to know what I'm allowed to do, what I'm not allowed to do. I need to know what medicines I should take and what I shouldn't take. And I need to know where I should invest my money and where I shouldn't invest my money. But yet, somehow, the world runs with experts who help me, who's not knowledgeable, interact correctly with this area of knowledge which is relevant to me. And the Torah is not this way. The Torah is not, some, is not an area of knowledge where we identify, where we interact on a technical level. We send a rabbi to a yeshiva for several years and then he'll tell us how to keep our kitchen kosher and how to keep Shabbat and we'll just do it. Torah is much greater than that, and the Torah demands that there's a personal interaction with each and every individual in Am Yisrael with the Torah. And so even in that sense, even something that on a technical level is completely irrelevant to me, I am not going to build the Mishkan. I need to interact with the Mishkan. The Mishkan is part of our lives. I have to delve into it. I have to find some point of understanding to grasp onto. And so too with the Torah in its entirety. It's going to be hard to live, though not impossible. It's hard for many people to stand by on the side and learn Torah and keep Torah, pardon me, observe the Torah, observe the commandments without having some sort of understanding of what they're doing. And the more we understand, the more we identify. On another level, the Mishkan is a microcosm of the Torah because at times when the details seem insignificant and not understandable, the greater picture is understandable. And while it's hard for me to 
understand the details of the vavim, the hooks that connected the different parts of the Mishkan and the Adanim, when I see the structure in its entirety, with, with every cleat in its right place, every vessel in its right place, there's a sense of understanding this greater picture and seeing that everything fits properly. I don't understand the details, but when I look at the bigger picture, I see that everything fits. And intuitively, that gives me strength that the details, though I don't understand why they make sense, apparently they do make sense, because when I put all these details together, this big, beautiful picture came together. And the same in that sense we can extend to the entire Torah. That here and there, maybe even in a lot of places, we might have details that we don't understand, that we have questions, that we challenge. And then when we look at the bigger picture about what Judaism is about, what the Torah is demanding of us, we see that suddenly... A lot of these details that didn't make sense under a microscope when the, when the bigger picture was observed, they suddenly came into place. They fit. They fit into that picture and the picture looks good and the big picture makes sense and it's logical. And if I can't ask myself the, answer the question, why does God want this particular detail and why does he care? I can certainly talk about why God wants us interacting in the physical world with practical mitzvot, and not being satisfied with a Christian point of view that only says, Rachaman Ali Babai, that God only wants our hearts. God wants our hearts. That is true. But God wants our actions to lead our hearts to the right conclusions. And if I can't understand a particular action of why it's so crucial to God that I do this or that action when I see this greater picture of the Torah's demands and what it's building, somehow, not understanding the details under a microscope doesn't make such a big difference. Because I see the big picture, and the big picture makes sense. And if I don't understand in a building why a specific pole or cement block has to be used, but I see the final product that the builder made, and it's a good product, then I don't have to know at any, at any, anymore why that particular pillar or block had to be in that particular place, because the big picture makes sense. And in that sense, maybe two minutes to reflect on one idea to think about while we read the Parsha. When we look at the Kelim of the Mishkan, they're divided into two groups. There are those that are pure gold, the menorah, the top of the Aron, the Kaporet, are both made out of pure gold and are made out of a unified piece of gold. On the other hand, we have Kelim in the Mishkan that are made of wood but are covered in gold. I'll, I'll throw out a theory here and I'll let people think about this while they're reading the Parsha. If the Mishkan is the place where Am Yisrael and God get to meet each other, get to interact with each other, 
And of course, the strongest expression of that is the Aron and the Kaporet, because the Aron is wood covered in gold, representing Am Yisrael, and the Kaporet, pure gold, sitting on top, is God. And somehow the rest of the Kalim fit into a similar picture of this interaction between the vessels that represent God within the Mishkan and the vessels that represent Am Yisrael in the Mishkan. Food for thought. And at this point in our program, we will now go to Rav Tavori. When Gimel Adar is the yard site of the Rav who is known as the Adaris, of Eliyahu David Rabinovich Taomin. Rav Rabinovich Taomin was born in Lithuania on Shavuos in 1842 and 1843. Interestingly enough, we have a letter that he writes to Rav Cook, his son-in-law, and mentions that today is my birthday, or this week will be my birthday. And he mentioned that it will be the 60th year since he was born. If we knew exactly when that letter would be written, we would know exactly what year he was born. But there's no date on the letter, and we're not sure if he was born in 1942 or 1940, in 1842 or 1843. His father was known as Rabbi Yamin Of course, the Gemara in Baba Basra had mentions a person named Binyamin Hatzadik. <coughs> His father's name was Rabbi Yamin, and he was known as the epitome of modesty, a true Tamid Chacham, and he was known <coughs> as Binyamin Hatzadik. When Yaderes, Rabbi Yo David was born, he was one of a set of twins. Because of that fact, that there were apparently fins, twins in the family, the, they added the name Toomim. That's how his name became Eliyahu David Rabinovitz Toomim. The acronym of that name would be Aderes. His twin brother's name was Reb Tzvi Yehuda. He learned, as we could say about many others, he was a child prodigy, a Tamil Chacham, but yet we'll see that he was a most unusual person. Even among the worlds of Gedolim and Tamil Chachamim, there were characteristics about him that were very, very unusual. He was in Panavish, apparently learned years in Panavish. In 1874, when he was about 31, he became the Rav of the city of Panavish. He stayed in Panavish for quite a few years, and then moved to Mir, where he became the Rav of Mir. Of course, Mir was a city that is not as important at that time as Panavish, but it had a yeshiva, and the Adaris wanted to move to a city which had a bigger yeshiva. He, in his letters, which we have a number of, he writes that he was very poor. The salary that they could afford to pay was rather dismal, and his conditions all throughout his life were not good. He talks about a fire that destroyed half of the city, his own house, his own possessions, and it seems that he never really made a good living. However, the years that he was in Mir were years of tremendous output 
in his learning, and he wrote a lot of svarim. These svarim generally were comments on almost everything, when the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch and the Tur, to this, a great different type of genres were used, were written by him, and some of them were published, but today there is an organization that deals with printing and reprinting all the works of that there is, so now much more is available. One of the most interesting svarim he ever wrote became a, a, a bibliophile's uh, curiosity. He wrote a book about Hakel, Zechel Mikdash. The mitzvah of Hakel is a mitzvah that basically had been forgotten. Uh, the Torah tells you to go to the Beis Hamikdash at the end of the Shnas Hashemitah for this tremendous public assembly called Hakel. But today, because there's no Beis Hamikdash or there's no access to Beis Hamikdash, or certainly in the time of the Adares, so this mitzvah was not one that was even thought about. And the Adares suggested having a Zechel Hamikdash, have some sort of a a commemoration of this mitzvah, of having a, an, a, a some sort of connection to the mitzvah Hakel. He wrote a choveret, Zechel Mikdash, explaining all the details of the halacha, does it apply today, should it be appropriate to institute, but the curious thing is, he wrote this book anonymously. He did not want his name on his farm. In general, he was so modest that although he did write a great deal, much of it was hidden from the eyes of the general public, and he did not want people to know that he was writing svarim, that he was such a mechadesh, such a, a big tamil chacham. In order to disguise his identity, when he wrote this book, Zechel Amikdash, about Hakel, he even wrote a haskama to the Sefer. He made it sound as if the author had come to him and asked him to write an approbation for this particular sefer, which he did. Not only did he write Askama, he argued with the book. We argued with the text. He explained how you could learn differently. So, in an unusual circumstance, a person wrote Askama for a sefer that he wrote himself, and not only that, but he argued with himself, as it were, in it within the Haskama. Of course, in later years, the this book has been reprinted and the story has been revealed that it really was the Adaris who wrote the original book, and now it's printed with many, many more editions. Many people have taken this text and dealt with it and expanded upon it. Now there's a big sefer called Hakel, which has in it the Choveret of the Adaris with his name on the on the sefer. Eventually, after being in Panevish for a few years, in, in Mir for a few years, he came to Mir in 1893. A few years later, approximately 1901, he was chosen to be the Rav of Yerushalayim. In one of the biographies of Rav Kook, it mentions that they made a Mesibat Preidat, they made a, a farewell dinner for the Adaris when he left, when he left, left Europe to come to live in Eretz Israel, and they mentioned the Rav of Mir, the Rav of Panevish, and apparently Rav Kook got up and stood up and said, "What do you mean the Rav of Mir and the Rav of Panevish? The Rav of Yerushalayim." 
he came to Yerushalayim and he found a very difficult situation in front of him. There were many kihilot, there was a, a, a tremendous chiloni force in Yerushalayim, there, were, there was dissension between the Hasidim, between the Misnagdim, there was there were all kinds of problems that Rav Kook described in a book about the Aderes. He said the Aderes was unusual in the fact that he wrote many Svarim, but many of them were not published in his lifetime, and he tried to hide his identity very often. Included among the unusual things that Daderis did is he wrote a biography. He wrote an autobiography. He wrote about himself where he described his personality and he explains there how sensitive he is to everything. Time after time he wrote how something affected him so much that he began to cry. And sometimes he said he cried so much that he was embarrassed in public because he would just burst into tears. When he came to Yerushalayim he was very distraught at, the, at, distraught at the situation that he found, but he improved the situation a lot, made a lot of takanos, and was very effective in uniting the different kilot of, of Yerushalayim. He became the father-in-law of Rav Kook. Rav Kook wrote a biography of the Adaris. It's printed in the standard edition today of all the writings of Rav Kook that are published by Mosad Rav Kook, Eider Hayakar. Eider, of course, is the shortening of the word Adaris, Hayakar. He had the precious. And he described the, uh, the Adaris in this book. He also brought there certain letters of the Adaris and certain comments that the Adaris made himself, about himself. The Adaris wrote, among other things, I hate pride, I hate gava. From my childhood, I hated anyone with whom I saw these signs of hubris. I have none signs of pride at all. Even though I am aware of my abilities, but it does not lead me to any pride. I never liked money. I cannot say that I've reached the level of despising Betza. Remember, Moshe, when he appointed Dayanim, they looked for stony Betza, people who hated money. The Adara said, I never reached that level, but I never reached the level that I wanted money. I hated cover. It, it hurts me when people give me cover, especially when I know that there are many greater than I. I know that they don't really know me well. I receive too much cover for that I deserve. Any good qualities I have are an inheritance from my father. I love the truth. I despise sham, fakery. Everything good about him, he said he received from his father. I love Torah. I love Tamil Chachamim, he said. I always respected people 
and treated people with great respect. And he said, I never showed most of my writings, which HaKadosh Baruch Hu allowed me to write with, through the merit of my ancestors to one out of a thousand of my favorites. Every time I wrote a book, I wrote on the first page, If you did learn a lot of Torah, don't take it as a sign of pride. This is for what you were created. As I said, Rav Kook was his son-in-law, and Rav Kook was brought to Shalayim, to Yafo, more specifically, through the efforts of the Aderes, and it's interesting to see the letters between Rav Kook and the Aderes, where the Aderes was very sensitive and very worried that Rav Kook should be able to make a living in Yafo. He descri- described in detail exactly what you need, how much money you need, what kind of furniture you need, what kind of clothes you need. And you see that his care for his family, and not just for his family, for other people too, as is shown in the letters, was really remarkable. He had a tremendous sense of sensitivity. Among the customs that Rav Aderes said about himself were that he always was careful to say Kriyashma at a proper time. It's more than 20 years, he said, that I'm used to saying Kriyashma every day before Hanetzah Chama. Because according to some Rishonim, that is the preferable time to say Kriyashma. Now, interestingly, this comment of the Aderis with another comment of his became important to me personally, especially this year. For personal reasons, this year I have to daven Shacharis very often before Hanetz HaChama. To say not only Kriyashma before Hanetz, but to say Shmonesrei to daven before Hanetz. The Aderis said Kriyashma before Hanetz, as is the opinion of many Rishonim, but we do know that there are Rishonim, Tosus in, in Yoma quotes Rabbeinu Tam as saying that you should not say Kriyashma before Hanetz. Kriyashma must be said after Hanetz. So it seems that all people who daven today before Hanetz are certainly davening with the Eved. And that, of course, is a simple meaning of the Mishnah in Megillah Tavchaf, where the Mishnah says all the laws that apply in the daytime really, really could begin from Amur HaShachar, but the Chachanim said they should begin from Hanetzah Chama. Now, the question that arises in Mishonim is why should we not be allowed to do everything from Alos HaShachar if Me'ikar Adin, Amur HaShachar is morning? And according to some Rishonim, it seems because we're not sure exactly the correct times. In order to prevent a person davening from before Amur HaShachar, they said you should wait till Hanetz HaChama to daven. But at Mi'ikar Adin, it seems that you would be allowed to daven even before Hanetz HaChama. This opinion and the conclusion that I'm going to draw from it has been rejected by most posting. However, the Adaris is quoted as saying that today, Bizman Hazeh, where we have accurate watches, we certainly have accurate luach, an accurate luach, where we know exactly what time Amur HaShachar is, what time Hanei Sachama is, 
and we know exactly what we're doing. The Adaret apparently paskin that lechatchila you're allowed to say you're allowed to daven before Hanates. Now, as I said, most poskim didn't agree with this, but nevertheless, for me, it brought me some measure of comfort that at least I have the Adaret's opinion that I'm davening lechatchila and not b'diavet. The Adaret's love for mitzvahs that he would be careful to say kriyashma even before Netzachama, shows one last incident that I'd like to mention in his life. When he was very ill, Rav Cook reports to us that on Gip, Rav Cook reports when the Adaris was very ill, on the night of Gimel Adar in 1905, the Adaris at nighttime knew that his end was approaching and he asked for Tefillin to be brought to him. Even though there are opinions that you don't put on tefillin, but he wanted one last mitzvah putting on tefillin, at least according to some shitas, you'll fulfill the mitzvah of tefillin. And he was nifter on Gimel Adar after having fulfilled, at least according to some shitas, this last mitzvah of tefillin. His levaya in Yerushalayim was appropriate for the Rav of Yerushalayim, although not everyone appreciated his godless in his life. As I said today, more and more svarim and more and more ksavim are coming out, are being printed by an organization, and today the, the Torah of the Adaris is being spread more than ever. Thank you very much, Rav Tavori. And with that, we'll be wrapping up our Erev Shabbat program this week, Erev Shabbat Parshat Shumah, with perhaps a little bit of more motivation to understand the details, to delve into the details, perhaps some clues for us to looking into the Parsha, comparing the pure gold kalim and the wooden kalim covered in gold, and perhaps a little bit of reassurance that even if we don't understand the little details, if we see the big picture, we can suddenly understand the details and the place of the details without understanding the details properly. The big picture, the completeness, the beauty of the greater picture makes us understand that the details make sense. Even if I don't understand a specific detail, the details make sense. And I encourage everybody to hold on to those two messages throughout their years. Keep on forging forward and understanding Torah. Do not be satisfied with not understanding the details. But be reassured that all the while that you don't understand the details, you can be reassured that the details make sense. Shabbat Shalom.